Okay, Hurley Burleyites, I'm going to ask a question that doesn't need to be asked, but please indulge me because I'm coming to a point. Could you live without the internet? Could you live without the instant access to critical information, such as your bank balance? Or in my case, ignoring looking at your bank balance for fear of what it might say. Or to listen to your favorite political podcast and then tweet complimentary things about the host's haircut. That would be nice. But there are so many Canadians who just cannot afford the internet access they need to live life on an equal footing without help. Our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and their Internet for Good program offers more than 200,000 low-income Canadian families access to low-cost, subsidized, high-speed internet and a computer, as well as training and tools they need to participate safely in our digital world. TELUS Internet for Good ensures parents can stay connected to their support networks, digital learning opportunities, and job opportunities, while kids and youth can learn digital literacy skills. And it's just one part of TELUS's All Connected for Good program, which bridges the digital divide and helps ensure that all Canadians, regardless of their location or circumstances, have access to the technology and resources they need to navigate the digital world with confidence. To learn more, go to connectingcanadaforgood.ca. All right, it's David Hurley here, and welcome to the Hurley Burley. We're back this week with our political panelists, the ever-insightful, highly entertaining Jenny Byrne and Scott Reed, both of them former campaign strategists and campaign leaders. Jenny for the Conservatives, and some may remember Scott as a liberal in the past. <laughs> you know them. Or the guy that lives behind the liquor store in the <laughs> You know them, you love them, and if for some reason you hate them, they know exactly where you live because they've seen the voter databases. Before we dive in today, I have to tell you how grateful I am that many of you are taking the time to rate and review the show. Our rating is currently 4.9 out of 5, so there's a tenth of a room point for room for growth here. Thanks for spurring us on with a little criticism. And here are some of your reviews. Cam Buddy F writes, If you like intelligent opinions coupled with the odd expletive, this is the show. Thank you, Cam Buddy F. Dinksog says, The Hurley Burley is six rum and cokes out of five. I like your math, Dinksog. <laughs> and V. Korch writes, I like their analysis and it's very entertaining, but the swearing isn't as funny as they seem to think it is. Cool it, guys. So there's a difference of opinion on the swearing. Let's tone it down that shit a little bit this fuck week. Fuck that guy. All right, fuck that guy. All right, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get at this thing. Let's get at this thing. There was, some, there was something important happen in politics this week. All of the premiers from Canada and the, the provinces and territories got together, and they met yesterday in the great city of Mississauga. And at the end of it, Jenny, what happened? Well, the net result, surprise, surprise, uh, it seems that all the premiers uh, are, are uh, in agreement that they need more money uh, for health uh, for healthcare transfers. Right. Uh, I guess the ability to opt out of a national pharmacare program. Um, but in the communique, there were certain things that were uh, noticeably missing, which which shows that uh, you know there there is obviously not consensus on issues like pipelines. There's no mention of pipelines, and there was no mention of uh, uh, Bill 21. So right. uh, I, I think that was interesting uh, as well. They all got to go home with a you know a branded uh, personalized Toronto Maple Leafs jersey, to which I would wish for what is it 10 million moths to come and uh, <laughs> uh, t- and uh, come and eat it. <laughs> well, I'm sure that is what is going to happen to most of those jerseys. Yes. Yeah. Scott, what did you think yesterday? 
Well, I obviously didn't like the jersey thing. Um, you know, I didn't, why not just give everybody a Mike Babcock bobblehead and say, here, uh, enjoy, welcome to Ontario. What about the, the Bab socks? The Bab socks, the Bab yeah. Socks. Yeah, I think the There's Bab socks are taking on a different meaning the more yeah, we learn about no, Mr. Babcock, right? There's a surplus of them uh, in a warehouse somewhere, probably in Mississauga. Um, you know, I, so yeah, obviously, I mean, the, the first and most fundamental takeaway is, oh, golly, the premiers were able to come together, uh, find consensus on the fact that Ottawa's got all the money and they won't fucking want it. So mm-hmm. that's no big shocker. Um, and there were some stuff that was absent. They obviously just steered clear of uh, controversial issues um, where they're divided, um, which, again, is probably predictable and understandable. It is a little bit frustrating when you hear um, political leaders, including some of those premiers, say the country's never been more divided, and then they basically skip past those issues of division. There is not a single mention of the word of the phrase cl- climate change right. in the entire communique. Um, it's a puzzling thing. So, um, but I note they're not taking on the prime minister's challenge to try to work out equalization either. No. In fact, and I think this is the most interesting aspect of it. It's where I was driving to. Mm. They bailed on equalization where the any honest or thoughtful discussion of the formula will take you into winners and losers. And instead, they move to something called the Fiscal Stabilization Fund, which most people have probably never heard of. Even people that are really well-versed in federal-provincial relations probably don't know. And it's basically just a fire alarm fund, right? Like, let's pull the fire alarm and let's get cash. And I actually think it's a helpful thing. I think it charts a course for the feds and they say, okay, so this is a tool that they put on the table and this is obviously something that we can use um, to ameliorate tensions. So it, it's it's helpful that it's positioned there. Um, but there's no substitute in my view for fundamentally addressing the fiscal arrangement stuff and it goes beyond the um, the emergency-ishness of the stabilization fund and you got to deal with equalization and then you got to get into um, divisions of views. So I'm not shocked that the premiers avoided divisive issues, but those divisive issues are going to have to be confronted sooner or later. And I think they will. I think and by the, them too. Well, I think by I think the purpose of this meeting, to Scott's point, was to at least come to consensus as to what they agree on. So they agree they need more money for health care. Some provinces want pharmacare, some do not. Um, so I think that is, I think as we see what happens with the, with, with the liberals and their um, uh, one-on-one approach with different premiers, especially, uh, you know, uh, ministers, or, uh, uh, premiers Kenny and Mo, it will be very interesting. I was in Alberta for the... Uh, uh, United Conservative Party uh, uh, Party convention and 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 Premier Kenny Jason spoke in his speech about very productive first step meetings with uh, Christopher Freeland. He was he he said it was very good and he's very yeah. excited about that. The there was a lot of interest in in their uh, their panel on the fair deal. So this is the committee that's looking at um, a provincial uh, you know provincial pension as opposed to CPP provincial police force provincial. Um, uh, you know, prov- provincial tax collection. And I think the reason they're looking at this is, is the equalization formula is very understandable and, and, and a very high awareness for Albertans. They feel very, they feel very unhappy with this. They know they've given more money, but at the end of the day, there's not, it's, it's not going to change. You need what, seven provinces and Quebec being one of them. So uh, I think that's why you're seeing uh, at least at this point, some form of uh, consensus um, because uh, Premier Kenny is pragmatic enough to know there's actually not a lot that can change an equalization right but now. That's why I keep coming back, and I'm, I sound like a policy wank for a, a switch. It's why I keep coming back to the um, precedent of the Atlantic Accord, like a side deal. People that- who like policy call them policy wonks. People who don't like policy call them policy wanks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll return to my... 
<laughs> and on that point, I'll return to my characterization of myself as a policy wank. Um, but that uh, the Atlantic Accord precedent, so that you do something that operates as a complement to the existing equalization formula. Although I do think there's still some tinkering to be done under the hood of the formula. I think, though, the most interesting political question going forward, actually, that's on the table now, uh, is about pharmacare. Like, I, I, I think we now ask ourselves, oh, wait a second, is the most fundamental consequence of going to minority that Trudeau is going to lose his pharmacare program? Is he not going to be able to put that through? Or will we find out that ultimately um, he will cut a check that's as big as all outdoors in order to secure pharmacare? Because to me, that's the obvious implication. They're not going to accept it unless it comes with a chest full of treasure. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, we did see major social programs in the 1960s come into being in a minority circumstance. But boy, oh boy, it sure feels like that thing's being fatted up for the kill. But, but of course they'll be able to get their national pharma care program. They, they, this is the beauty of the, if, if you're sitting there as Justin, in Justin Trudeau in his prime minister's office, uh, this the beauty is you're going to get whatever you want. You have enough votes on either side. You can push through a pipeline. You can have a national uh, pharmacare program just by the sheer side of the uh, like of the votes. You have 121 on the Conservatives. You have 60 some on on the. I'm not talking about the federal. You can get through the House of Commons, but like the English media focused largely on Ford and the Jerseys, yes. and then on Kenny and Mo. Yes. Um, but I think the most important person around that table is Lego. Yeah. Uh, for the Feds, for sure, he's the most important person around the table, and he is the roadblock. Really, to national pharmacare. Well, but but the, so the provinces in their communique asked for an opt out clause. So, yeah. um, you know. But you have an opt out clause that everyone invokes, and you got no goddamn program, right? right. So, well, then, I mean, but it, then you've got a policy that obviously people don't want. Well, that those people don't want. Um, I'm not certain at all that uh, people uh, and the public don't want it. And I think if you're Trudeau, you say to yourself, how much do I feel that this is actually a fundamental tenant of my legacy, something that I am committed to doing, altering and adding to the social program architecture of the country? And and I think we now know that this is going to be an interesting debate for the next 18 months because I think there's a deal on all this stuff where you write a big check and you – do some arrangements on fiscal stuff, and you abandon pharmacare, and that's one of the prices of peace. Or there's a deal where you say, no, I'm going to fight on that ground, and I'm going to cost the Treasury more. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch to see how that unfolds. I don't think they agreed on anything particularly meaningful for um, uh, going forward, as we've been discussing, but was there a tonal difference there that we were supposed to pick up on? I don't think there so. wasn't a lot of Fed bashing. No, I and I don't think they want to. I think that they genuinely uh, want it to uh, uh, get together, even if it was just to show that they're they're united or they're uh, they're discussing. I think it's going to come down to the one on one meetings with the Prime Minister and Christian Freeland as well with the uh, uh, with the premiers. You know, um, as 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 we were saying, the communique uh, left out two big things that. Um, were were giant were huge topics in the last election. Bill twenty one, the religious symbols ban in in uh, in Quebec, and pipelines. So those were two major issues that we talked about, or the the parties talked about. Bill twenty one dominated the first English language uh, debate. So yeah. these were they were showing that they're willing to have consensus now. But it, 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 we'll see how long we'll see how long it uh, we'll see how long it that lasts. Right. If you were still in the PMO, yes. Say Mr. Harper's PMO, mm-hmm. right. 
how preoccupied would you have been with the premier's meeting? Would that be something that was really important to you? You paid a lot of attention to it. You tried to maybe direct it in a certain way, and the outcome's going to matter to you, or is it just? I, is it, I think is there, it show? Is it drama? I, I think I think that we obviously would have paid attention to it. We would have seen what was uh, coming out, but our approach was different than than yours. We we didn't have first ministers meetings. Uh, uh, the prime minister spoke on a very regular basis with all of the premiers. Uh, when he traveled around, he met with them. He met with them regularly. So although we would we would pay attention, it's to our point. We're talking about nothing really came out of this meeting. So what can the prime minister's office? really do. They've got the communique. I'm sure they've they've there's people in the office that have spoken to their counterparts in in the premier's offices, but you know, it, it seemed to be a meeting more uh, I'm not going to say for show, but it seemed to be a meeting just to say, hey, uh, we all want to at least work together on the surface right now. Uh, the ball now is in the Fed's court. Right. Can't have been very deliberate if it was only three hours long. No. Scott, you, I, I mean, can I throw out one thing? No, one yeah. thing. I, I don't think if Stephen Harper was still prime minister in this circumstance, um, that he would have the luxury of conducting Fed prob relations in the way that you just described. I think one of the interesting implications that's suddenly upon us, and no one's debated it, no one's discussed it, it's just suddenly become a fundamental reality, and the meeting yesterday highlights it. Um, we are back in the era of executive federalism. I mean, that's the only way we're actually going to move some of these issues forward. It probably is a consequence of some of these divisions and some of the regional tensions that – you know, the premiers are looking for consensus within one another. They're looking for the Kennys and the Moes are looking for people to backstop them. And I think that's going to become the mechanism. You're going to end up in a situation a la Pierre Trudeau, a la Brian Mulroney, a la Paul Martin, where eventually all these people are going to get locked up in a room. It's going to be messy. They're going to get sweated. They're going to get pressured. And something's going to break one way or another. And, and Who's so the upper hand right now between the federal government and the provinces? I actually, I, I don't know. Um, the feds always have the upper hand if they're willing to write a check as big as fucking anything. The feds always have the, they have the treasury and they can bring people around and on side by virtue of the pen that strokes the check. Okay, will you open this up for us a bit? Because you were part of um, a marathon, <laughs> marathon meeting, FedProv meeting with the, between the prime minister and the premier's territorial leaders about healthcare spending. Yeah. Um, it's quite legendary in the way that it went down. I don't think many FedProv meetings have gone down like that one did. But nonetheless, you saw enough of those premiers behind closed doors. Do they drop all this rhetoric when they get there? And is there a different, do they show a different face? Is there a different kind of discussion? Behind closed doors, how do these FedProv meetings go down? So what you're referring to is the 2004 Health Accord, um, and we had a couple of them. We also had one on equalization, which was uh, because it followed the Health Accord. It was a little, um, little less uh, intense, but you know it was a three day meeting, uh, and day one of those meetings was supposed to be a dinner meeting at 24 Sussex, which basically fundamentally lasted all night long. Uh, it it kind of became a uh, sleepover um, for almost all the premiers. Um, you know, Ralph Klein, who knows what was going on, whether he's being politically intransigent or as usual, like, sorry, I, I, I had to go to the casino and um, and switch back Ryan Coke. Um, he didn't really show uh, much, Left, came late, left early. Uh, Danny Williams, who, you know, a lot of us don't remember Danny Williams. I know you and Ralph talked about him on the podcast the other day. A 
capital P prick if ever one lived. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Oh my goodness. Something we can agree on. Oh, and remember the way he talked about Harper? I mean, he takes down the flag, yeah. right, over the Atlantic Accord. You know, I'll tell you a story about Danny Williams. He's coming to Ottawa. So I phone, and obviously tensions are high. So I make a point of calling his office in advance and saying to his comms director, hey, media are going to be asked about what's the play going to be? How are we going to do it? So my suggestion is I'm not going to ramp up expectations, not going to put a bunch of things on the table. I'm going to play nice. I'm just going to say, look, you know what? This is really a day for discussions. We don't necessarily expect anything specific to come out of it. It's going to be you know, a good set of meetings. We're looking forward to constructive construction. She's like, yep. Next day I know... I wake up next morning, people, and this is what I say to the Globe and Mail, people are going bananas because in Newfoundland, Danny Williams is going on VOCM and saying, the fucking prime minister's office is saying nothing's going to come at this meeting, that it's a waste of time. Why am I even going to goddamn Ottawa if this meeting won't have any outcomes? And when I call his office to go, I thought we had prepared a script on this and we had an agreement. <laughs> it was kind of like, there was kind of like awkwardness and like not really like a confessing, but more or less kind of like, hey man, like who's going to stop him, right? Like he is going to say what he's going to say. So he, you know, anyway, and I couldn't fight back because I couldn't be seen uh, in a, open fist fight with Danny Williams, although I found myself in one. Yeah. So he refuses to come to the meeting and he's a, so your question is about what are they like behind the scenes as opposed to, uh, you know, in front of the cameras. So Danny Williams is exactly the same behind the scenes as he was in front of the cameras. An intransigent, insufferable son of a bitch. Okay. Mm -hmm. So fuck him. And he was of no use to us. So we just had to sweep him along. But lots of he'll be carrying around something called Muskrat Falls for the rest of his life. Yeah, um, I think the history. I think the history has declared itself well. And he used to call Prime Minister Harper Steve, and he takes the flag down. I mean, it's, these are things. He, in that, the 2008 campaign, he would actually at campaign events when we would. This was the ABC, the anyone but conservative. Uh, uh, campaign that, right. that he waged. Um, he himself, we would get reports, uh, he would drive around and write down the license plates of people at conservative campaign offices or at conservative events uh, because he wanted to enact retribution. He wanted to make sure uh, they lost their jobs, like uh, publicly called them out on, on radio, like just people that were like yeah. uh, participating in the democratic process. The through and through shit. But he was so he was what he was. Um, there were a number of premiers, especially in that marathon dinner meeting, which lasted all night. And the reason it lasted all night is that we got into some substantive discussions, and so we were starting to see, well, can we make some movement on this stuff, and what can we do here and there, and trying to um, prepare the ground. And I think we ended up with about eight of the premiers or n nine of the premiers and territorial leaders staying a good chunk of the night, like into two, three in the morning. We're pounding through stuff, and a number of the premiers. Um, really, Merce is very constructive behind the scenes. Like, Gordon Campbell was really committed to trying to play um, a constructive role. Um, wasn't trying to grandstand. It was, you know, really doing his best to try to say to other premiers, you know what, guys, like, let's, like, we know we're going to wrestle for money. We know we're going to wrestle over what's the price of that money. Um, but let's try to, you know, move it along on those lines as opposed to just, like, yelling ourselves into corners that we can't walk out of. And Bernard Lord um, was even, I'd say, even more constructive in that he wanted to play a genuinely active agent role in trying to find uh, points of consensus. So, you know, behind the scenes, you know, you get all kinds of craziness. I remember walking on out in the back and it was cold. It was February and we're walking out back on the, on the lawn overlooking the Ottawa River, you know, with Dalton McGinty and his senior advisors and uh, chit-chatting. And they were no uh, princes to us either, um, to be clear. It wasn't like there was like, oh, okay, federal cousins. No, yeah, no. none of that. Um, they were rolling as hard as they could. But, you know, so you had a bunch of weird, intimate moments as a consequence of being locked up like 
that. And I remember at the time thinking about reading articles and stories from the Mulroney era of executive federalism. And when, you know, Mulroney himself tried to provoke that atmosphere, it looks messy from the outside. It looks like it's just a barnyard and people are locked up and they're missing deadlines and they're in there all night. But Mulroney's thesis always was, well, this is a labor negotiation and that's what you do. You lock people up and you force them until you find out what the real bottom lines are and then you work backwards. But you only do that when people are fatigued, tired, pissed off, screaming, crying, yelling and smiling. And that can only happen after hours of exhausting work. Speaking of exhausting work, that's it for the Premier's meeting. We're going to break now for a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, we will be talking about the situation with the Conservative leadership. So I myself am a rootless vagabond who has no real home or community. But Ontario realtors live and breathe their communities. They're connected to the people, places and things that make their neighborhoods tick. But why do they do it? That's easy. Building stronger communities is part of their DNA. It's the people and places that drive them to be civic leaders, ambassadors, and builders. The Ontario Real Estate Association is proud to support Ontario's 80,000 realtors and all they do to build stronger communities. Go to realtorscareontario.ca to learn more. Okay, so... I got a realtor. I have never had a realtor. Terry bought our house. Sight un- I had never seen it. Two um, cousins. From, really? Uh, yeah, from Forest Hill Real Estate. She's a crackerjack, man. All those people are... I uh, I had a I had a uh, uh, I put together a re- church league basketball team in Regina when I was in grade eight, and I went and I got the biggest business person I could imagine. Which did was you play in Jesuit robes? Francis Olson <laughs> Realty in Regina was the big realtor, and I went to her personally, and she agreed to sponsor the team, and they bought the uniforms. And on our first day, when we show up in the dressing room. I had a revolt on my hands among the players because uh, they had put the slogan of the real estate company on the back of the jerseys, and the slogan was, call an Olsen girl. (laughs) (laughs) So neither the players nor the parents were all that happy with the... uh, with the uniforms, but that's that's my that's my realtor story. And thank you, Francis Olson, for sponsoring the Crusaders basketball team. Um, when I got involved in politics, um, there uh, one of the first major skirmishes that I was involved in was in 1986, after John Turner had uh, become elected leader in 1984 and then lost the 1984 election. There was an automatic leadership review vote uh, coming up in 1986, and uh, the hard cadre of Gretchen supporters uh, were ready to take Mr. Turner down. A lot of Mr. Trudeau, the seniors, people who had supported Turner the first go-around were now against him and wanted to take him out as leader, and that was a massive internal fight, um, organizational at the riding level, um, that had a defining impact on the Liberal Party for years um, afterwards. Um, So these things are big, they're momentous, and they're incredibly (laughs) internally disruptive. Um, But they can, at times, be necessary. So, Jenny, you were out at the United Conservative Party Convention in Alberta. I was, it was a great time. You were just referring to the speech Premier Kenny gave, but Andrew Scheer also spoke at that meeting. He did. And he obviously did not persuade you because you have come out in favor of a leadership convention. So 
Would you like to walk us through your thinking about that? Well, my thinking on, on this is uh, <coughs> I think there's only one uh, – one question that conservatives are asking right now, and that's if that's if Andrew can win the next election, can he beat Justin Trudeau? It's really the only purpose of a political party. We we elect leaders, uh, we set policies, we campaign on those policies, and then we get into government and implement them. There there are it's it's in a nutshell that is the that's the, in essence what a political party does. And where I have come personally, and where I know a lot of other conservatives have come, is uh, since the election, uh, there's been no indication, and in, in, in the election results, there's been no indication that Andrew uh, can do that. And to your point, um, I think the next five months could be very divisive and uh, very distracting uh, for uh, uh, for our party, and therefore. Uh, so that distraction does not continue because it's not going away. It was it's going to dominate uh, at least the chattering class within the Conservative Party, giving Trudeau a free ride. Uh, it would be better to start whatever leadership process there is now, as opposed to go through five months of infighting uh, to then start it in in April. We're in a minority <coughs> situation. We don't. Ha- we might not have a lot of time. Right before before you jump in, Scott, I just want to ask Jenny one 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 follow up um, to that, which is. The conventions that have uh, the leadership reviews that have gone full to convention, like Joe Clark in '82 and '83, like John Turner in '86, Stephen Harper in 2005. Okay, right. Um, the contested ones have been about. Uh, there was never any question that Joe Clark was going to win a majority of the delegates to the leadership mm-hmm. review, and there was never any question that John Turner was going to win a majority of delegates to the leadership review. The question was, would the opposition be significant enough to show that they didn't have a hold on the party? Mm-hmm. So the objective was to get, say, 40% of the people to vote um, for a leadership review and force the leader yes. to take that and then step down. You seem to believe this is more one-sided than that, and therefore there's no point to going to a convention. Like, this isn't a question of whether Scheer gets 65% or 75%. There's not that much support for Andrew Scheer. Is that right? Well, so I when I, I, I was publicly asked about my opinion on this last week, and I've, I've been, I've been vocal, uh, vocal about it. It's nothing personal against Andrew. I, I personally like him. I've known him for well over 20 years. Um, but the funny thing is, is, I have received almost no negative feedback on this. And like, I, I think back to like when I had staff that ran my Twitter account, uh, my, my buddy, Matt Wolf had it, uh, you know, ran it during the 2015 campaign. He works for, uh, uh, Premier Kenny now. And uh, he said, you know, we could tweet out a picture of a cat hanging onto a rope saying, hang on, it's Friday. And you would still get people that's like, go screw, Go fuck yourself, Jenny Byrne. Like I, like I've had people respond and say, "I hope you get cancer. You're you stupid. See you next Tuesday and die." Like I, it's, and that's for like pushing out something on like Michael Ignatieff's going to put in an, a Netflix tax. So it's been surprising to me at very little uh, response. And the only response that I get from people is, "Well, let's just wait till the convention." And to which I say, "Do you think he can beat Justin Trudeau?" And I have yet to have one person. What answer? I'm sure when this goes public, I'll I'll be deluged with people uh, 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 that will that will send stuff in. But um, I have not had anyone that can actually answer that question or will will say yes. I think that Andrew Shear in a year can be Justin Trudeau. I think just an important thing for people out there to understand about political parties. And Jenny's been making. And I'm going to come to you on this. 
You can know a leader well. A leader can have been a good party person. A leader can have worked the party well. Um, a leader can have uh, have a policy direction that you're comfortable with and believe in. A leader can be a substantial person that impresses you. But if that person doesn't look like they're going to win an election, they don't fulfill the essential characteristic of political party leadership. Is that right, Scott? Yeah, of course that's right. I mean, that is the fundamental mission. I think one of the things that's interesting about contemporary politics is that it's worth asking ourselves whether we now have moved to a default position where it's one and out. Like, if you don't win, you don't stay. Um, because I think it's been since Harper that a party leader was able to lose an election, of the conservatives or liberals at least, lose an election, and then survive on and, and, and fight again, much less fight again and, and win. Um, but but that everyone keeps saying this convention thing. I don't. I think it depends. It, to your point, it has to look like whether they can win. Like Joe Clark, um, Joe Clark was prime minister for nine months, and the Liberals came back and right. and and won a majority. Uh, you know, Tim Hudak won seats in in two thousand eleven. He picked up a slight. Uh, he, he uptick a slight seats, and then the Liberals won a majority. I don't think it's as easy as everyone deserves two kicks at the can. No, no, no. Sorry, you're misreading me. Yeah. Um, uh, I was making an observation, and I don't think it is definitive, but it feels like maybe that's the trend, that the speed and pace and urgency and demands of our uh, contemporary political points of view are that you've got to demonstrate that you can win and you probably won't get a second kick at the can. Um, and I'm not even sure that that's crazy. I mean, if you look back on it, it's like, what, what would the Conservatives... Was Robert Mannion going to win the third time around? You know, I mean, like, you know, maybe they should have had a little bit of that uh, back then instead of just taking uh, loss after loss after loss. When it comes to Shear, I just think it's an interesting question. Like, I mean, is that the default position now? Like, in in the in the pace at which politics operates now, if you can't demonstrate immediately that if you don't win, you must be able to win, then that's that. And I think it is a fundamental test. Like, there's nothing about Andrew Shear that inspires confidence if you're a conservative. I assume that he can do better in the next one. You look at it and say all of the conditions for success were on tap. And yeah, he started from a place where expectations were not that he could knock Justin Trudeau off. And yes, he won the popular vote, all those things. But those are relative tests as opposed to the fundamental absolute test of whether or not you win. And I don't imagine he's going to do better next well, time. Well, and, and a lot of people I've spoken to have said that it has wasn't just the election. It's been uh, what's happened since the election? What a fuck show it's been well, but for there's the past been, there's month. There's been very little communication with uh, with with uh, party members. In in fact, uh, you know, and Andrew hasn't done as much reach out to, from what I've told, to certain members of caucus or or what have you. I think the appointment of Leona Elislav, I would say her name wrong, uh, as deputy leader, really had a lot of people in the last part of the week puzzled. How, can and you can puzzled. you just stop and uh, and explain that to us? Like, how on earth? After you lose an election, you know you're facing rear guard revolt in your own party. How on earth could you select someone who's been a member of the party for one year? 905 woman. Well, that's, or nobody else would take it. One no, of those two. No, no, no. It, 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 this was deliberate. People would have, other people would have taken it. Uh, I think they, she's in the 905, she's a woman. I think the weird thing uh, is, is that, uh, to Scott's point, uh, she's been a party member for uh, a year. And... Uh, so so it's great that she came into the fold, but that doesn't mean she has to have a leadership position. And especially at a time when he is facing uh, the, the leadership challenges that he is, I would have put my most ardent supporter uh, in there. And if it's another uh, if it's another guy from the prairies, uh, then then perfect. But 
I would assume that you'd want someone in that position that can reach out to caucus, can go to DSMs, can go on the stump for you, that can can go and and uh, and, and be, can strong arm people. and be, yes, and can, can say, hey, we're going to have discipline in this. If you're not on board, then you're not on and, board. And so okay? she can't do any of that because she has no no uh, history in our in our party. And frankly, what he's done to her is actually unfair because he has probably prevented or really slowed down any integration into her part into this into the conservatives. Well, and she got uh, caught up in that thorny Irish question, which has been screwing people up for years. <laughs> the troubles. She yeah. wandered into the troubles. I, 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 I you know, sh- sh- shall Andrew Shear march in the Orange Mint Parade? <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you tell that he can't win again? Um, like, what is the judgment that people look at about that? So, in in my recollection of Clark in eighty two, eighty three, is people said, okay, he screwed up the tr- the Trudeau thing, and uh, we think the Turner's coming to replace Trudeau now, and we don't think that Clark can beat Turner going forward. Um, so they made that decision that he was unelectable based on the previous election and what was they thought was coming. Turner survived because he didn't get blamed for the 84 election. Most liberals thought that that yeah. was coming after 16 years of government, and he happened to be the sap that was there to take the, to take the beating. Um, I mean, I don't have a different view about Shear's electability today than I did six months ago. He's the same guy with the same skill set. Um, and um, anybody that thought that he could win six months ago, what's changed? Well, what's changed is we've had an election. Right. We, we had an election right. uh, where uh, in the areas we needed to win, Quebec and Ontario, we actually went down in, in votes. And it right. was a very challenging election for uh, Andrew. But I don't think it matters. Like at this point, th- how I look at things, I don't think it matters why he – People think he's unelectable. Everyone has a different opinion. If you were to talk to, <laughs> no, but but if you talk, <laughs> what a fortunate position. Everyone can agree I'm shit. They just maybe disagree over why exactly I'm shit. Well, no, but if you talk to Quebecers, if you talk to Quebecers, they'll say uh, his position on abortion uh, right. was what was what did us in. Um, I don't per, I, personally. I don't. I don't disagree. I don't agree with that. Uh, you'll talk to some people that his. Uh, you know, opposition to gay marriage when it's so mainstream uh, now within within the country, including within the party, um, uh, is 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 a reason. It 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 could be policies. It just doesn't matter. Fundamentally, people just don't think he can he can win the uh, win the election. Okay, the reason I was asking is because in the other circumstances that I think about. It's always been a relative measure, not an absolute measure. Mm-hmm. So in the Conservative Party in the early 80s, people said not just that Clark couldn't win, but we have a more likely winner on tap, and that's Brian Mulroney, who can potentially deliver Quebec for us. Um, and um, most of these leaders, mo- most times... There is an heir apparent but when no, this is going on, and there is no obvious heir apparent. Or on, there isn't. There isn't. There, there isn't. That is the thing. No one. This is no one. This is not about Cretchen or Martin no, or Turner no, that makes or it so Mulroney. much more damning. But it's not. Yeah. Exa- but this is this is more like 
in, in 2002, when uh, Stockwell Day was going through his leadership challenges, there was no heir apparent there. There was no, uh, like some people might I have said Stephen right. Harper's name. There was none. But you had it, you know, in, in, in its way how history comes back. Mark Strahl, uh, the uh, party whip and a big supporter of Andrew, his dad quit caucus and was a leader of the DRC, the yeah. Democratic uh, uh, Reform Caucus, uh, that led the charge on, on Stock's leadership. There was no heir apparent there, but also the difference is I lived through that. It was a civil war within our within our party because Stock had a significant number of of supporters. You had uh, the majority of caucus. You had uh, a lot of riding presidents. I remember uh, there was an AGM uh, for in Calgary Southwest, which had been Preston Manning seat, and uh, Ezra Levant and others led the charge to take over that riding association from the the, the people that had been running right. it for Manning for years. That. that was a proxy for Stockwell Day's leadership. So yeah. uh, I don't. Think- he was a stockaholic. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> I do, <laughs> and I love. St- I love. I say this. I, like I, I love. I love Stock. Um, uh, he went on to be a fantastic minister and got thirty five percent in the subsequent leadership race that we had in 2002. So I don't, this has nothing to do with, with, uh, with anyone organizing for a particular campaign. Okay, but not to kick the living shit right out of the guy, because it seems unfair and there almost is no other kind of argument. Okay. Well, just because there's no other. I mean, like, you know, well, I'd like come to on, think- And actually, I'd like to get onto it because it's not like I'm the only one sitting around that has, has ever spoken no, no, about no, we've the all current been, leader of, their, sure. uh, of we, their We've party. been involved in the, uh, the... The point I wanted to make, though, No, is I, 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 I've been hugely outspoken in favor of an existing leader against a review um, uh, in the Mr. Turner situation, and I've been a complete agitator for a leadership change. Yes, I know. Um, at the, sure. uh, yeah. the end of the 1990s. But, but we all have. 2000s. I was a huge supporter of Stephen Harper. He got 84% in the 2005 leadership review at our convention in Montreal. I just, in Montreal. Stephen Harper, yeah. Montreal, I, I was there. election. Uh, I was there handing out buttons and trying to be a pain in the ass. Um, the, um, the point I just wanted to make is that, yes, we can go. The Stockwell Day uh, precedent uh, escaped my memory. It's a good one. But by and large, David's point is correct, which is it's very unusual to not have an heir apparent. That is a component of a leadership review and leadership uh, dump process. And it, and 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 in some ways, and I think in almost every way, it's more damning because it's such a harsh, unfiltered personal judgment on this guy. It is your party saying in the aisle between you and don't know. Right? Don't know looks pretty fucking good to me. Okay. Right. That's how condemning we are of you. And so it is a harsh personal judgment. And it makes you wonder what will it take to secure the outcome you want, which is, Jenny, that he um, he moves on before putting the party through this. Like, is it 30 caucus members signing a letter saying, Merry Christmas, Andrew, please piss off? Is it a delegation of uh, party seniors? Like, what? There are two or three conventions that are usually employed to try to force a sitting leader out. What would happen that might have that effect on him? Because this debate's happening in public. Well, let me just add and one he's bit holding of con- his line. Let me just add one bit of context to that, which is quite shocking. You've raised it. One of the things that makes this so sad is there seem to be no significant senior party members who are loyalists of his. I do not see the other side rising to this fight. At all. Mr. Clark had the support of most of the establishment members of the Progressive Conservative Party to keep his leadership. John Turner had the support of most of the uh, establishment members of the Liberal Party to keep his leadership. This looks more like Dion or Ignatieff, where after the or election, Mulcair. it's like, no, or Mulcair, where like everybody just scatters and says, you, buddy, you're on your own. I don't want to be even close to that. 
Um, so in that context, I don't even know how he could try to hang on to April. What would he think April would be like if he did? Like who's on his campaign? Who's on his side? Well, he's got caucus supporters. Uh, Chris Warkington was out last week. I like Chris is a is a good guy. I've known him for a long time. Uh, Senator Denise Batters. Uh, they've they've they've. She- We're talking about people on the margins of the party here, right? Um, the prospective uh, but- cabinet of the Conservative Party is not there for him right now. There, there, he has had very little vocal, uh, vocal what about support. Party infrastructure does because he is the sitting leader. Has he established uh, those sinews? Like, does he control riding associations that would give him um, an organizational advantage? I, I actually, I don't know the full extent. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the full extent is. I, I, I would say what is what is unique about this is that a lot of a lot of the. Um, the people that think that it's better for the party for Andrew to step down now, as opposed to put the party through the next five months, it's, it's as I said, it's very organic. It's not, it's not a, it's not an organization. It's, it's people that just genuinely feel that way. The horrifying irony and is what, that the longer he fights, the weaker he looks. Like you know, what I mean, it doesn't actually make him look stronger. He looks as weak as day old tea. And um, there's just, I think that's a fundamental takeaway, right? The guy just comes off as weak, uh, like weak. What weak. did Robert Urbach call him, boiled celery? Yeah. I don't even know what that means. I didn't even know you boiled <laughs> celery. But, um, and I don't know how you get it from under that. Right. So um, one of the ways that you can win these things if you're a leader, mm-hmm. hold on to your leadership in a leadership review, is to make somebody else the enemy, to make it about somebody else other than you, to right. pivot it. That was quite successfully done in the Turner exercise in 1986 because Keith Davey and Mark Lalonde and some other people like them came out against Mr. Turner. And then it didn't just become about whether or not you wanted Turner. It became about whether or not you wanted to go back to the people who'd run the party for the last 20 years Mm -hmm. under Mr. Trudeau. Um, and so then it became a generational change, change within the party thing. And he Turner came to symbolize that generational change, which helped him. Uh, so he would have had a more difficult time had not those old Trudeau people re- raised up their heads. Shear is trying to do that, not to put too fine a point on it. I see Shear deliberately trying to do that with what he calls the consultant class, the mouths for hire. Right, going after Corey. Yeah, going after Corey and presumably now you. Um, do you worry that that could be possibly successful, that he could galvanize support against sort of an LCM regime but, type of people? Well, we listen, don't this, want the Jennies back in charge. Well, and, and I have no interest in in being back. This has, this has nothing to do with other than uh, I have spent my entire adult life um, uh, working for the conservative movement, and I do not want to see us uh, uh, living through what the Canadian Alliance went through again, which was, which was eight months of infighting uh, to end up exactly where people expected it to be, where Stockwell Day, there was going to be a leadership race and Stockwell Day was, was, uh, was, not, uh, was not the leader. As I said, I have had very little uh, negative feedback uh, in terms of my comments, but this isn't about me. Like, this, act- this, is, about, uh, this is about Andrew. So, yeah, I know. Um, I, you know, it, it, we'll see how he goes. Tonight is the Conservative Christmas Party in Ottawa, I'm told. So we'll see what the, what the chattering out of, uh, we'll see what the chattering out of that is. But if, if, if going after people like uh, me or consultants within the party or people that are, that are, uh, uh, you know, speaking, speaking out and being, and by the way, like, you know, 
it's I gave heads up to people around Andrew that I if I was asked what I was going to be what I was going to be saying so it was not going to be a surprise to them. Right. So um, you're a polite assassin. They well no but <laughs> if, if, he, just... if he thinks that I'm the problem then he still has a problem problem acknowledging as to what is happening within the party. It yeah, means that, that he sense. is out of touch with what is being said by activists uh by activists on the ground. Absolutely. Okay. But to your point and David, the last thing I want to say is I've been I've been where you are by the way just to be clear. I mean this is not I don't mean to be picking on you after Mr. Dion lost the 2008 election. I have no ill will toward Mr. Dion. In fact, I think he's been a great mm-hmm. servant and member of the Liberal Party. Um, and I think he's a high intellect. I think he would have brought a lot to the job, but it was evident after watching him in the 2008 election that he wasn't going to be able to run a competitive election campaign and that he couldn't win. And that there was no point in going through a lengthy leadership process. Yeah. I mean, I was one of those people that was urging Mr. Dion right after 2008 to step down, just as you were doing, and in the same constructive, and I was in the same frankly, boat. spirit. And, and, and listen, I'm assuming uh, that members of caucus are hearing uh, from their members, uh, from their riding presidents, about what they what they think. And I'm sure they're uh, probably having private conversations with uh, with with Andrew. And if not, they should be. Um, that that is the that that is the responsibility of uh, of uh, of caucus members because right now I'm not sure he fully comprehends the, what the level of conversation is happening across the across the country. It's it's and I don't know who the people around him, but it's it kind of goes back to the same problem that. I think he had, I think it was October 17th, the day that we did the live taping of the Hurley Burley at the pilot, right. when he said on the John Moore show, we're going to win a majority. Yeah. Well, he obviously had been told that, but for anyone that was knocking on doors across the country, especially here in Ontario in the 905, in the breadbasket of seats that we need to win to win government, it was evident that that was not the case. Mm. You know, David, your point about having a target, ha- having a fight, and you say, well, he's you know building up a narrative about the consultant class. My criticism goes back to the weakness. I don't think he's waging that war hard enough. Like if I was working with him, I would be like, let's get a deputy right now who is going to be uh, the axe swinger. Let's name Corey. Let's name Jenny. Let's go hard on this stuff. Let's question their motives. Let's try to make people feel uncomfortable about being aligned with those people and those motives. And I know I'm talking about you in the third person, Jenny, but I would go hard at it and I would use party figures, particularly elected. (laughs) I would, but I would, I would go hard at it. And I don't see a commitment to that strategy. It's kind of half-assery and half-assery get you exactly nowhere. Well, last night, for example, I'm just going to end with this because it's, as I said, I, I like Andrew. I just, I care about the party more than I care about any individual. Um, uh, is that we, there was a campaign debrief last night and what was reported on the news is that uh, there were no caucus in attendance for the candidates, like the candidate uh, portion, which I think very weird because in this region, uh, uh, you know, you've got your new deputy leader, uh, you have others, and there was no caucus members that showed up to the campaign debrief yesterday. Mm-hmm. I think the other argument, by the way, to have a leadership in their party is because before this sheer thing blew up. There was a brief mini news cycle of people talking about, most notably our friend Dennis Matthews, talking about how do we expand the base of the Liberal of the Conservative Party just a little bit? Yep. Like how do we raise our ceiling from what seems to be 40 to maybe 45 or closer to 50 so that we've got more accessible voters? How do we tweak our model so that we can be more attractive to, to we can be attractive to more people? That kind of wreath, and people are saying, well, what, where does climate fit into that? And where does social conservatism fit into that? Those kinds of things are actually best recon- thought through and reconciled in a leadership exercise. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's how parties come to yeah. grips with those kinds of challenges. Yes. 
Right. Is there a risk, Jenny, um, that you could end up with the worst of all possible worlds, though? That as those sorts of debates, let's assume that Andrew Scheer at some point is felled and that the party does have that debate. But is there a risk that, just like Andrew Scheer actually emerged victorious because of the Brad Trost and that kind of stuff, is there a risk that you end up in a situation where all of this happens and an even more unpalatable social conservative ends up winning? Or is the party going to say, we just won't permit that to happen? Is it going to, is there? Who knows? Okay. Who knows? Hmm. Well, on that note, because whoever does know in politics, Jenny, Scott, thank you for joining us again this week. Lots of fun. And uh, we will be back uh, in two weeks for uh, the year-end wrap-up. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll have a speech from the throne to talk about. Boy, that will be dynamite, I'm sure. Well, I'm going to begin the, bro- the podcast by, by, um, by reciting it in full. <laughs> <laughs> well, government wishes. <laughs> well, and I'll just say, I, I think this one will actually be one to hopefully watch because normally they're they're mind numbing and and what have you. Always remember the things that that you screw up, like you know, announcing that you're going to have a gender neutral uh, national anthem, like we did at one point. Uh, but it will be interesting because uh, people are going to be watching for things like pipelines and and TMX and what have you. I agree with that. I agree with that. It's a chance to send a tone and maybe get noticed a little more. Than your typical throne speech. Okay, with that, with that, I'm now chastened, Jenny, and I will take it more seriously. <laughs> <laughs> These are an important part of the parliamentary tradition, <laughs> and you are wrong to dismiss it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I want to thank Jenny and Scott once again for their insights uh, to today's show. I would like to thank our presenting sponsor, Telus, and our original sponsor, the Ontario Real Estate Association for their assistance in putting together this podcast. This was, as always, recorded at the Orange Lounge on Queen West in Toronto, recorded and engineered by Metal Donkersgood and produced by Jill Engelman. Thanks for listening. Until next time. I'm done whether they say so or not.